0: From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Good company and civilized debate with a premium on fun. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
1: Well, welcome back. Um, Getting some good encouragement in the comments section. Uh, Very pleased to see my uh, toga-wearing servant has just arrived to refresh my gin and tonic, which I'm grateful for. I will hope for the grapes to be fed into my mouth in due course. You might hear the ice clinking happily in the background. You're always welcome to comment. Uh, We're a democratic franchise here on TNT. If you want to make a comment, you can go to the chat section at tntradio.live. Happy to give myself a bit of encouragement from Dennis Roundtree who says, Ross Cameron and Gemma Cooper. That was an excellent interview exclamation mark. I loved listening to how Gemma was spiritually woken up. And I have myself the book, Marcus Aurelius uh, Meditations. Very good um you couldn't uh get much better if you want to come feel feel free to uh to join the chat i'm here now i've demanded mark hornshaw uh, a uh, mate of mine and uh indeed the vice president of the libertarian party of new south wales Uh, before we get back into the home education project and the extraordinary results uh, mark was talking about the main uh, project in home educating is is largely complete by the age of 12 where the objective is not to cram a child with a schedule um, and a regimented approach to uh, subjects but to light the fire of love for learning uh, within the child. and according to Mark Hornshaw, that can usually be achieved in his experience by the age of 12. And from that point on, it's basically a case of just uh, encouraging um, uh, you know, their self-directed learning. I think it's a very seductive uh, story. Mark, before I ask you to return to that subject, You are the vice president of the Libertarian Party of New South Wales. Um, Why don't you give us your summary of, uh, you know, and I think there is obviously some overlap between your very authentically libertarian approach to life and to the education of your children uh to your rejection of uh the demand for information from a census collector uh what does it mean to you to be a libertarian and vice president of the new south wales division of the libertarian party
2: yeah i think it means understanding the difference between the community or the society and the state the state is not part of society society is where people use pro-social interaction, in other words, voluntary interaction. And the state, well, well, not just the state, criminals as well, uh, but the state is the institutionalised form of antisocial behaviour, of taking, of forcing, of telling people what to do, of, of, uh, you know, achieving your objectives by force, by coercion rather than persuasion. And so both the state and criminals act antisocially, socially um, And so libertarianism, well, libertarians just want people to act lawfully. Uh, we just want people not to commit crimes. And we don't give any excuses for people. Oh, it's okay to commit crimes if enough people agree with you. No, it's still not okay. <laughs> I think to me, that's what libertarianism is. And so we build society through voluntary interaction with one another. And so, while we do live under the state, we try to minimise um, the, the use of force by the state, but we also try to maximise the the voluntary society that that uh, you know runs parallel to that.
1: Well, look, um, I am. Uh, if 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 we're in the cone of the confessional, you know, don't don't tell anybody else. Just between you and me, <laughs> sure. um, I. Um, I'm really attracted to uh, the home education model. And um, I feel, and I'm influenced by a number of sources uh, in that regard, among which uh, you are one. And you may recall our, I think we had an hour long conversation, perhaps, must have been, yeah. it was, I think perhaps our very first conversation where uh, somebody said to me, if you're interested in homeschooling, you need to talk to Mark Hornshaw. And um, it was then that I looked at your son's YouTube clip in relation to his uh, rock climbing adventures. Indeed, if one of our <laughs> listeners wants to uh, look and find, uh, where, what, what should they look for to find your son's YouTube clip on uh, rock climbing?
2: Uh, that would be youtube.com forward slash Hugo Hornshaw.
1: Hugo forward slash Hugo Hornshaw. Yeah. Okay. So like,
2: around that age of 15, for kids at school, it's often the most the difficult age. It's the age where they're the most lost and the most struggling to cope. For home-educated kids, it's where they absolutely come alive. It's where they've discovered what their thing is. And it's chalk and cheese difference at that age. Um, my current 15-year-old daughter, um, she won't tell you, if, like if you ask a home-educated teenager what do you want to do when, they, when you grow up, they'll look at you funny. What do you mean? Just ask me what do I do? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I do it now. Yes. She's, a, she's a writer. Well, she, she wrote a novel, not, 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 not published, but she's got it under her belt. And then in November... She was part of a writer's challenge to write a novel in a month, and she wrote a fifty thousand word novel in the month of November. Now, how many wow. people could write fifty thousand words on anything yes. in one month? Yes, um, but but that was the challenge that she set for herself, and that's what she did. And you know, but but uh, you know, another son um, who's um, now seventeen. Well, he wants to do more engineering, mathsy kind of things. So he's just teaching himself, um, you know, up to university level maths before he actually goes and enrols in any institution to certify him in that. He's learning it himself first, um, not relying on on even university to actually teach anything. Um, But sometimes, you know, sometimes kids have a passion or an interest that doesn't turn into a vocation. Uh, A a researcher, Peter Gray, has, um, you know, um, done a lot of sort of research on what he calls unschooled um, um, you know young people. He's found you know there's a much higher proportion of unschooled kids end up with a vocation that's they're also their hobby you know that's also their, their creative endeavor right. but not always yeah like it but but being able to find out what you like and push into it hard and get good at it, is a transferable skill. Yes. So, so if your thing is circus tricks, which which one of my older boys um, was, and he would do circus tricks and he would, you know, set up ropes and he would juggle and he would unicycle and he would um, tightrope walk and he would do, you know, circus tricks for hours a day and didn't end up with a career in the circus, ended up with it d- doing a trade, but being able to do something and like it and learn about it, you can then transfer that to something else, much more than the people that say, oh no, you have to do a little bit of geography just in case, and you have to do a little bit of history just in case, and you have to do a little bit of maths and a little bit of this, and a little and these 40-minute compartments at school, and you forget all of it, and it's all just isolated facts and isolated particles of data that you forget as soon as you walk out of the test. Actually, that's not a transferable school. Even like I did, doing well in exams, I did well in exams at school. Um, but you never do an exam again <laughs> in the rest of life.
1: Yeah,
2: Cram studying is not actually a skill that you need. Yes. Um, um, knowing what you like doing and doing it is is what you need to do to, to be good at anything else in life. Um, so we, we've also given our kids opportunities to be involved in home businesses. We used to have when our, when our older kids were were younger, so this was sort of, uh, you know, 14 years ago now, we had a go-karting business and we had a, an inflatable track and electric go-karts and we used to go to kids' parties. So their weekends were about running a business, serving other kids and it's a kid-friendly business, of course, because yes. it's doing kids' parties. But they learn to be producers. So, so having a, an interest doesn't just mean, oh yeah, I, I like Marvel movies. You know, if you ask a school kid, oh yeah, I like I like movies or I like, you know, but they're consumers of those things, not producers of them. A lot of the time, sometimes yes. they're producers, but often they're just consumers. You know, but being able to produce movies or produce video games or produce or uh, whatever it is um, and and make it a business. So we encouraged our kids to run um their own businesses and nowadays we've got a farm um yeah it seems like a lot of um home educators end up on farms you know it's kind of a very um wholesome family business um and so our our younger three still at home um you know you can't sort of require them to to want to do that forever it ends up being something that, um, they, that they say, thanks very much. I've learned a lot, but now I want to do something else. And you've got to, of course, have an open hand. But but a farm is also a great way to learn um, a lot of business skills and things.
1: Well, I think it was uh, George Washington who said that uh, agriculture is the uh, the greatest and highest endeavor of the human being. Uh, not least uh, and indeed aristotle uh, talked about the way in which the farmers um, acquired a degree of wisdom from dependence on the seasons and the soil and on seeds and on germination and on fertility and of watching uh, the seasons come uh, and go and studying Uh, animal husbandry and building relationships uh, with the animals um, and understanding, um, you know, the way in which a plant uh, grows, uh, bears uh, fruit, a crop, a harvest. And he believed that was produced a kind of wisdom uh, amongst the farming class that simply wasn't present among the urban class who were detached from the process which created the products that they uh, relied upon. Um, But, well, well, look, I'm really, uh, I'm kind of enjoying this narrative. Um, I assume a lot of people, and indeed I I include myself, I I, I will mention a couple of the other influences on me uh, in favor of educating out of the sort of industrial widget box that we describe a school Uh, i mean the most obvious and immediate one is you see the extent to which these uh institutions are no longer places of learning but have become places of intense indoctrination um we have a situation where i mean uh, john howard's media advisor graham morris used to say he watched the abc to see what our enemies were saying to our friends uh, but sending a child to school is basically um you know putting our children very often in the hands of our enemies who are determined to destroy their connection with the family um to Absolutely. cause them to question the most basic elements of not just their um, sort of uh, sexuality, but also of their very gender. This absolute fixation of you know the public education unions with sexuality uh, yes. at the expense of hard skills in uh, mathematics, uh, you know, literacy and numeracy. Um, I mean that alone. Is uh, you know leaving a very intensely bad taste in the mouth of a lot of parents. Yeah. I think likewise during lockdown, in a way, where it was a kind of an unexpected blessing in that kind of showed uh, parents, in some cases, how little their children were actually learning. And while the experience varied significantly across schools when we went to this remote learning model. I think a lot of parents were a bit shocked at the waste of time involved in sending a child to school not just the commute backwards and forwards but all of the standing around in queues all of the movement uh mandatory movement from one classroom to the next all of the times the scheduled teacher was away on maternity leave on sick leave on mental health leave um you know all of the times the substitute teacher came in who had no idea about who any of the students were Um, The fact that you had to try and teach a group of, you know, 26, 28, 30 kids who were at very different stages of aptitude and experience and learning, and you wound up with a kind of a lowest common denominator product, whereas, you know, your approach is very much a bespoke educational experience built around the capacity, the aptitude, the interest uh, of the individual student Uh, And I think on that basis alone, it's a very attractive model.
2: Yeah, Ross, just let me comment on the the wokeness thing. Schools have always been a place of indoctrination. Um, It's just what's being indoctrinated has blown up in the last couple of years. It's been, um, you know, like like the whole wokeness thing, the intersectionality and, and the gender confusion has been a thing in kind of the um, humanities departments in universities, um, but since it's sort of escaped, it's, there's been a lab leak in the last couple of years mm. and it's amazing how quickly it's just absolutely spread virally through every other institution. Mm. Um, so you can't escape it if you go to Coles or Bunnings or, mm. <laughs> you know, little yes. alone school mm. and so, there's so much of this um, gender confusion. But even the kids just have this power over adults by saying, you can't call me that. I've got new pronouns now. I've changed my name and you have to call me this. And teachers, especially substitute teachers, are just, oh, you're just all of they. I don't care. I'll call you whatever you want, but, I'm, but I've forgotten what you are, you know, and they're, and they're absolutely running rings around the teachers.
1: kids. Um, um- you-
2: you know, the, just let me say, on the, related to that, governments are wanting to put money into mental health. Okay, fine. Kids get bullied by other kids. They they go to the teacher. The teacher says, learn some resilience or sort it out or you're both on detention. But if the kid goes to the teacher and says, I'm depressed, then all of a sudden it's, ah, step this way. Yeah, There's yeah. funding for that. You get to be in the special um, class over here for kids with mental health problems. Now, there are mental health problems. I'm not diminishing that, but they seem to be infectious because it's a way out of other things. And so now you're away from the bullies. But you're with all the other depressed kids and you learn other behaviours, and so you learn the behaviours that you need to be diagnosed with other labels as well. And so this is just exploding too um whatever you fund you get more of as you know <laughs> right um yes, and so there's a thing
1: I had this I had- experience with one of my own kids um who thankfully uh has uh has pulled out of it well and truly but you know I had a child who came home from school uh to yeah tell me uh, that this particular child was about to take six weeks off because she had been diagnosed uh, with uh, depression slash attention deficit disorder by a school counselor who told her the remedy was to take six weeks off school. And I then asked uh, my uh, child, uh, well, how many other children uh, in your year have received a diagnosis of mental illness, uh, and uh, this particular child explained to me that all of them had been diagnosed with a mental illness. And yeah. I subsequently had a discussion with the CEO of a major of of uh, sort of Catholic schools, New South Wales, who at the time was a mate of mine. And he said, "Oh look, Ross, one of the um, sort of one of the sort of scandals taking place is exactly as you say, Mark. That if a child has received a diagnosis of some form of mental illness, it results in a better funding result for the school." Yeah. And this was almost like the ant-lion sand trap that everyone is sort of sliding into because the trap has been designed in such a way that more and more kids will be diagnosed with a mental illness. Yeah. Um, And I think it is an absolutely shocking, I would describe that as evil. That is an evil arrangement. Uh, If you want, if your idea of an education in New South Wales is to persuade a bunch of kids they're mentally ill so that your institution will get more money Uh, you know that provokes in me uh, a number of um you know of 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 words which are not fit uh for a family uh tnt radio show (laughs) but um anyway just tell us before i i'm going to ask you to answer one more question sure um And that is, what does it actually look like? Because a lot of people, um, I think, have considered uh, homeschooling, but have the idea that it will require a kind of uh, revolution uh, in their domestic life. And uh, sorry, I've I've used by habit the word homeschooling again. Uh-huh. You're saying it's explicitly not what is. It's not schooling, and I think perhaps that's one of the reasons why people are a bit intimidated about it because they imagine one or both parents, in effect, having to stand in the place of the Prussian uh, militarist, uh, schedule-driven um, uh, curriculum-dominated uh, teacher. And they just feel, well, I can't possibly do that and fulfill all of the other obligations already stretching me thin and pulling me tight. So just why don't you just describe, if you've done it now six times, you're still doing it. What What does it actually look like on the home front what at the coalface? Like,
2: yeah, what it looks like is family life. Now, it does require um, a sacrifice. You know, some people do it as single parents and, and as working parents, but that's, very difficult but actually doing it more like school school at home like we sometimes say is actually the easier way for parents to be able to just say to to do it more like school is efficient one teacher gets to teach 30 students it's actually quite efficient to do it that way to do it the more unschooly way the more self-directed learning way actually requires even more of the parents because you've got to kind of just be around, interacting with your kids, ready for there to be accidental learning at any, at any time. It's kind of less scheduled, but therefore you have to be even more available, if you know what I mean. So just saying here's your textbooks and here's your worksheets and here's your computer, pro. there are those things. And there are plenty of people that do it that way. And there are plenty of online um, syllabuses that you can buy and, and things like that. So there are different methods for different people. And so the people that want it to be more schooly can do that Um, and it is kind of easier for parents. And the people that want it to do it more natural learning sort of style can do that too. There isn't really a a one size fits all. In our house, it's been more of a, a natural learning. Some of our kids haven't actually learned to read until about 10 years old. But then by 12 years old, have read every book in the house because it hasn't been forced on them they've actually wanted to learn to read and then they learn to read really quickly and then they actually want to read it's for a purpose rather than just because you're told to do so by the teacher i don't think so it's it's different for every family
1: i'm going to give you a gold star um (laughs) i'm going to give you a high distinction um You know, I I don't say it lightly when I say you are a bit of an inspiration to me. I mean, we shall see uh, what happens now. I was, uh, I will tell you because I need to have a little, uh, I need to talk more as a general rule, you know, give me a microphone and you'll find it hard to shut me up. But... One of the uh, one of the examples that really has influenced me quite deeply is the relationship between James Mill and John Stuart Mill. And uh, yeah. James Mill was uh, home educated, and um, his there were two boys in his family. His father was a cobbler, a bootmaker, originally in Edinburgh, and they moved to a very little town called Bridgewater Mill in Scotland, and father continued his work as a bootmaker, and but they found in James Mill uh, this sort of uh, somewhat precocious, uh, certainly hungry to learn, and they made the difficult decision to send one boy uh, into the bootmaker shop with his father, uh, while James, the older brother, while James was kept at home with his mother, and in just a two-room little cottage uh, by uh the mill uh he was given access to a library and taught himself uh largely both greek and latin and uh from there i won a scholarship to uh, a local school uh, from there to edinburgh university but he set for himself the goal of becoming the best educated mind in europe and then was a tutor to some of the children of the lairds of the scottish nobility and in teaching teaching himself then in teaching them was a perfect precursor uh, to teaching his own son and there were i think he exceeded both the hornshaw and the cameron families I, my recollection is there were nine children uh eight siblings of john stewart but uh, and and he set it as the goal for his own son to be better educated than he was and They would go for a very long walk together every morning where they would set out the uh, goals, the educational goals of the day ahead and a discussion over what they had learnt the day before. And John Stuart Mill's autobiography is really the story of his education. And um, he says it is the most extraordinary aspect of his life. And one of the aspects of it was that he was then required to educate the other children um in what uh, he had learned. So anyway, um, you know my gr- yep. hero, uh, Mark Aurelius, homeschooled. and indeed, um if we go to someone like Edward Gibbon, in the Decl wrote the decline of your own daughter, fifteen years old, has written a fifty thousand word novel um edward gibbon had an education of sort of benign neglect uh, where he grew up lounging around in the library of his grandfather going from just book to book as almost like a free-range child let loose in a library and the product of that education was the majesty the monumental excellence and erudition in the decline and fall of the roman empire so there you go mark um you've lit the fuse uh, i hope that your example is as influential in a positive direction as the uh gender uh, diversity and inclusion uh confusion uh, ob- uh goal of state education in australia has been influential in a negative direction thanks for joining the ross cameron show
2: great thanks ross it's been fun
1: okay very good (laughs) ladies and gentlemen mark you're uh free to return to your family your exceptional children Uh, we're going to take a short break and return with jeremy kasmarov who we have required uh in the interests of humanity uh at civilization and uh ancient traditions of journalism which are Rapidly disappearing, uh, to get out of bed in the middle of the night in his location, somewhere in middle America, to defend a story which he has written, which appears in the new at newcoldwar.org and is entitled. New investigation exposes CIA role in 1975 coup against Australian government, which wanted to remove US spy base. So, don't go away. We will be right back with Jeremy Kasmarov,
0: TNT Radio's Joe Hoff. Just a terrible situation there, and Biden was behind it, pushing these arms, pushing billions of dollars over there. We don't know where that money went. I'll bet you money. I'll bet you a huge percent uh, went. I bet you more than fifty percent didn't go to the uh, to the people or to the war. Uh, it went to people's pockets, kind of like what we have in in uh, Palestine uh, with the U.S. since since well under Biden. Uh, Trump shut this down, thank God, but. In Biden, Obama—they start sending billions over to uh, that part of the world. These people are at, have been after Israel forever, and, and uh, supported by Iran. And billions of dollars going their way, and uh, to help them not, uh, you know, basically uh, create chaos in the Middle East, terrorism, and and we saw what happened earlier this year, about a month ago, uh, the the two of attack in Israel and the death and destruction rape and kidnapping. More than 240 people kidnapped. Joe Hoft on today's News Talk Radio TNT. I said could she die and the doctor said she could. It was so scary. When I started clawing at my neck and trying to breathe and I thought What are we going to do if I die here? (laughs) How's everyone going to go on? When someone's gravely sick or injured in the bush, they rely on the Royal Flying Doctor service. But now the Flying Doctor needs your help to fund vital medical equipment and supplies. Please search Flying Doctor online to give a regular gift of just $10. You can help equip the Flying Doctor's teams to respond to any emergency anywhere. Search Flying Doctor online. Become a part of the Royal Flying Doctor service and help save lives in the bush. We don't rock, rock. we talk. Don't talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio.
1: Welcome back. here on the Ross Cameron Show. And... Our next guest uh, has, as I say, dragged himself out of bed. He's looking remarkably good. Of course, you can now see our guests if you want to go and watch and listen live at tntradio.live. Jeremy Kazmarov is coming to us from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't know exactly what hour it is in the morning, but I know it's a bit inhospitable. We apologize for that. And
3: thanks for joining the show my pleasure to be with you
1: well listen i mentioned that this article appears in newcoldwar.org but it's actually reproduced from its original source Uh, why don't you tell us where uh, the article was originally produced and what was the prompt that caused you to write it
3: uh, sure, yeah. The article was published in Covert Action magazine, which was a magazine founded in the 1970s by a CIA whistleblower named Philip Agee uh, and uh, has restarted in the last four or five years. So hopefully you guys can check us out. Yeah, its uh, uh, focus is on trying to you know expose the covert dimensions of U.S. foreign policy and, and provide critical analysis on U.S. foreign policy that is lacking uh, in the mainstream media, certainly and what prompted this was um well peter osborne was the science advisor uh in australia in the 1990s and he was involved with some software uh, that was actually stolen uh, from him uh, and it prompted his uh, investigation into uh, certain clandestine networks uh, and it led him uh, because the article is based on uh, quite significantly on his research Uh, And how he has uncovered new details about this uh, basically coup that took place uh, in Australia in the 1970s to overthrow the Whitlam government. I mean, I think it was known before that the U.S. and the CIA had some involvement in that, but Osborne has really traced new layers and yeah, Osborne was because he uh, was following. You know, Danny Casolaro was an American journalist who had was first exposing this in the late '80s, early 1990s, and then he was found dead in a motel room in um, West Virginia in 1991. And it was clear to his family, and you know, it's clear if you look at the evidence that he was really murdered, and he was really, you know, into some really corrupt uh, business. And Osborne has kind of picked up on some of his investigations based in part on his own experiences uh, and insights in part into the, you know, it started all with this software. It it was software that was um, developed by Bill Hamilton, who was an NSA staffer. That was, uh, its original purpose was to provide databases for law enforcement uh, personnel that they could look up legal cases And, you know, this was really cutting edge stuff uh, at the time it was developed in the 70s. And the CIA saw that they had their own purposes for the software and they stole Hamilton's company and they also stole Osborne's company. And they used this software, you know, to um, for various purposes, including surveillance and to take control of of banking networks so that they and, and they set the SWIFT banking system so that they can carry out money laundering operations. Uh, and covert operation that made easier of this nature uh, that occurred uh, in the 1970s in, in Australia. Well, <clears throat> um,
1: you know, it's a big call. I, I understand there is that that is uh, the family's view in relation to Danny Casolaro that what was made uh, to look like a uh, a suicide was indeed uh something else and uh it's never really I think been uh effectively investigated uh and indeed we do find there is this category uh of what appear to a normal outside observer to be um uh, potentially a crime certainly worthy of serious investigation Uh, But if the uh, if the events take place kind of under the auspices of a state actor or state agency, uh, there is this significant reluctance uh, to investigate. And indeed, I found it uh, necessary, almost a duty, to to get in touch with you when I read this article, uh, which you know you might think would be appearing. In the Sydney Morning Herald or the Australian newspaper, uh, but instead appears in Covert Action, uh, written by a journalist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, because apparently uh, our guys, for whatever reasons, are not reaching for their pens and their forensic investigative skills uh, to chase down uh, the story. But um, You know, so your thesis is, there's a degree of complexity to it, but uh, happily for you, Jeremy, uh, you're talking to the world's most intelligent radio audience uh, on The Ross Cameron Show. Um, And really, you know, you, you, you touch on this fact that an agency, in this case the CIA, saw an application for a piece of technology, which they just decided, in your language, to steal, uh, I'm not yet, you know, as, as a lawyer who, who places upon myself a requirement to study the facts very carefully before um, making such an assertion. I'm not quite ready to do so, but I understand that is Peter Osborne's view. We might actually try and get Peter on the show. On a, on a, I did actually try to find him briefly, uh, but was unsuccessful so far. I understand you're quite correct that he was John Howard's science advisor. He's not a person, he's a person of some uh, reputation and accomplishment. But increasingly, I think what we see, your story operates in this realm where, uh, you know, these agencies are meant to operate under the democratic principle of parliamentary or congressional supervision. But when they don't get the authorizations they want, uh, there is this tendency, because of their uh, reach internationally, the capacity of these uh, agencies to cooperate, uh, there is this kind of propensity, which we saw, for example, in the Iran-Contra situation, where the Congress says, no, you're not allowed to spend taxpayer money to fund uh, a counter-revolutionary group in South America, they say, okay, uh, well, we'll just engage in an arms-dealing racket to generate the profits to create a slush fund uh, to do so to support our mates by some other means. And there are, it seems to me, elements of that principle taking place here where the agencies, once they get used to operating uh, covertly, they sort of arrogate unto themselves a freedom to do virtually whatever they want. Uh, and this story seems to be one among a species of similar stories, where you know the Whitlam government took a series of positions which the agencies didn't like which included uh, shutting down the Pine Gap spy facility, uh, withdrawing troops, Australian troops from Vietnam, uh, arguing for peace in relation to, um, I think it was Irian Jaya and in the Indonesians, uh, all of which were offensive, uh, certainly to the agencies. And so it seems under your thesis that they then hatched a plan to bring down the Whitlam government, but I don't want to put words into your mouth. It's there in your story. Why don't you give us a synopsis of what you think the agencies did in order to discredit and replace the Whitlam government?
3: Sure. Yeah. And I think you, you you hit on it as to the motives, what they didn't like about Whitlam with the spy base. Um, I think he was pulling back on support, you know, in, in Indonesia and East Timor. Um, and what they did, yeah, and what Osborne has uncovered is what they basically manufactured a phony scandal, a very sophisticated and complex operation. Uh, and, and that was, I think, key to the success that uh, nobody saw it as a coup at the time. Uh, so the uh, intent, which they succeeded in, was to bring down the government through manufacture of a phony scandal by making it look like the finance minister, uh, Jim Cairns, had signed off on a, a fraudulent loan that was in violation uh, of the Australian Constitution. You know, and He looked bad, uh, and it was a loan uh, floated by a so- uh, Saudi prince. But actually, you know, documents were forward. I don't believe he ever signed off really on that loan. And he did really nothing wrong. He had met with some people and met with this prince, but never signed anything off. And then Osborne research looks at the backstory and is able to uncover new information about this loan and, and the banks that were involved in signing off and issuing the loan. And he found you know, connections to the CIA uh with you know one of the key company was commerce international was uh owned by sonny fazoulas who went back whose uh career in the intelligence agencies went back to china in the 1940s you know when the uh, cia and uh other intelligence agencies were had been uh, supporting chiang kai-shek in the chinese civil war Uh, and he was also a liaison between the cia and the mafia and there was also another bank that was crucial, with Mercantile Bank, whose legal counsel was Paul Hellwell, uh, who was also an old CIA hand, who was a CIA liaison with the Mafia as well, and was a, uh, was, you know, had set up money laundering banks for the CIA and there yeah, had the fingerprint people like William Colby had uh, met with this Prince and was, was supposedly reporting to Henry Kissinger uh and then there was a, a shadowy figure named Robert Booth Nichols who seems to be the key figure enticing uh, Karen into these meetings and he had known he had uh owned some kind of steakhouse uh that had actually been a CIA safe house and Cairns had gone to the safe house. And even, I think, once sought refuge there because he was, you know, the Vietnam War, we forget, was really very heated in its time. And there were a lot of supporters of the war. And I think, you know, he had been opposed to the war and he was actually attacked by some people because of his opposition to the war. And he took refuge in the steakhouse. And he was in connection with with Nichols, and Nichols was a key liaison figure. And Nichols was a very shadowy figure uh, who was central to many covert CIA operations in the 1970s and 1980s. And he was even in a Steven Seagal film. Uh, But yeah, he seems to be a key CIA figure. Uh, And he was connected with Theodore Shackley and some other big figures within the CIA, as part of what some have referred to as a secret team that were also involved in the Iran-Contra uh, drug smuggling and arms smuggling operations. And as you say, I think you point out correctly that, they I mean, the CIA always and other intelligence agencies, I mean, they always operate secretly. And then in the United States in the 70s, they were under a lot of heat because the, there was the church committee. There were certain uh, operations that had been exposed, you know, in Cuba and the Vietnam War with the Phoenix operation. So they were starting to feel some heat. Uh, so they they began to operate even more secretly than before, and were carrying out yeah extra legal operations uh, without any kind of oversight, as in this uh, major operation. Um, well, um, the Nugent Hand Bank
1: um, featured, uh, but your argument is that the so-called f- the the four billion dollar loan that was in in effect offered to Cairns um, in your thesis was never intended to be delivered. It was in effect, instead of a honey trap, as there is seemingly increasingly evidence that the Epstein uh, operation um, is a sort of a Mossad CIA Uh, compromise operation. Um, Your thesis is that the Nugent hand loan offer was never really intended to be uh, executed or delivered, but it was really a compromise operation to place cairns and the whitlam government under the shadow of a scandal that they had sought to borrow money on behalf of the australian government outside of the authorization of the australian treasury
3: correct correct yes
1: and you are um okay well look i'm told we have to take a short break jeremy haven't you gotten out haven't gotten you out of bed so early we're going to demand that you remain at your post until we return in about 90 seconds. Stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. You're on The Ross Cameron Show.
0: De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective.
4: Well, of course, the biggest story in climate right now is Vice President Kamala Harris leaves for the climate conference with the biggest carbon footprint in history. She's heading to Abu Dhabi or whatever, for COP28 in Joe's place with hosts under fire for wanting to push oil and gas deals. Do you know why there's so many people there? Because they realize what a scam this is and they're trying to push oil and gas deals. Anyway, she left and there's 400,000 people expected there. Now, do you really believe that those 400,000 people are all interested in eliminating fossil fuels I would say there are quite a few of them, given Abu Dhabi is in the Middle East and there's a lot of oil in the Middle East, that are seeking to do business because they know what a scam this is. And let's see, at its head, Sultan Al-Jabbar has denied reports he's using meetings at the summit to make side deals on fossil fuels produced by the United Arab Emirates. I'm sure he's smart enough to probably be doing that this is tnt climate and weather watchdog meteorologist joe bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather even if we can't go over to Abu Dhabi, because it's the only weather you got
0: when the world's endangered animals need help most when their lives are at greatest risk when they would otherwise be lost the international fund for animal welfare is there taking action to rescue the animals we love to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. You're with Ross Cameron on today's news talk, TNT Radio.
1: Well, good day, welcome back. Uh, we're actually with Jeremy Kasmarov from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's uh, an interesting combination of uh, names jeremy kasmarov uh what is the kasmarov story where, do, where 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 do you come from
3: uh well i was born in montreal canada uh, a lot of my family uh, comes from russia and eastern europe uh, were jewish so okay well um i sort of wish um
1: i was jewish uh I see that uh, the most recently elected uh, president of uh, a South American country, Argentina, uh, Javier Millet, looks to be seriously contemplating conversion to Judaism. Uh, I know that uh, Judaism is one of the religions that doesn't really encourage conversion. (laughs) You go to a rabbi and say, I want to become a Jew, he'll say, what's wrong with you? You Have you you seriously thought about what you are considering? Um, Jeremy, tell us what, you know, you're wading into, you're sort of wading into a, um, you know, a bit of a rabbit hole here with one of the biggest, toughest bullies in the playground. Um, what makes Jeremy Kazmarov a kind of guy who's going to write this kind of an article um, as opposed to all of the other sheep who are just sort of bleating uh, in in harmony with the, the deep state doing exactly as the agencies wish?
3: Uh, well, I yeah, I got into this topic uh, as, a, as a graduate student, actually a, a book uh, by Alfred McCoy uh, on the drug trade and the CIA, because I actually I had a background in criminology and I was doing a, a thesis on the drug war. And I kind of started to get into that murky world then when I read Alfred W. McCoy's book, The Politics of Heroin, uh, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade was a real eye opener for me uh, as a naive young man uh yeah who had uh you know uh, you know uh was conditioned by that media uh, to think certain ways or you know never explored these or uh, heard about this kind of stuff before so I guess my you know curiosity got the better of me and, uh, and I got into this kind of stuff and uh you know ended up working with covert action magazine uh uh so yeah, well, there is a
1: very interesting, uh, it's an interesting subject, the role of um, narcotics um, and in intelligence agencies. And I think part of the attraction is where you get these agencies who are needing a source of uh, funds, which is outside of congressional or parliamentary supervision. Uh, both the drugs trade and, indeed, the arms trade uh, become pretty attractive and interesting uh, to uh indeed government agencies and i think there is a fair bit of evidence for example that the us sort of has pretty fairly actively protected the heroin trade in afghanistan for its own strategic purposes if i'm not wrong i'm happy to be corrected you're more expert on the subject than me
3: yeah, well, from what I've, uh, from the research I've done, it would even go further than just protecting these networks. Yeah, and there is a long pattern of that, you know, and what McCoy exposed uh, during the Vietnam War is, you know, the U.S. ended up lying in the, you know, Golden Triangle region in Thailand and Laos, as well as South Vietnam, with very corrupt elements uh, who were central players in the regional drug trade. And then, you know, the Nugent Hand Bank was set up really as a drug laundering money laundering front for drug major drug trafficking organization and it was set up by Michael Hand it was an ex-Green Beret uh, and I think it was directly, there were certain CIA operatives who may have been directly trafficking in drugs uh, to finance covert operation, you know, in the golden triangle using the Nugent Hand Bank as a kind of beachhead, as well there are operations in, in South America. So I would agree, yeah, they are often protecting drug trafficking networks, and sometimes it may go further that they're directly... Uh, of course, yeah, maybe they, uh, you know, they make sure that they're not, you know, their hand, I mean, difficult to finger them as far as any law enforcement investigation, but they're behind the scenes uh, profiting uh, from some drug smuggling operations. And we saw that, you know, it came to light in the Iran-Contra affair that Oliver North was quite directly involved in uh, drug trafficking to raise revenues for the Contras after Congress had cut off aid in the 1980s. Yeah,
1: well, now we see, um, you know, the the rest of the world sort of says, well, if the US can do it, we can do it. And we find that an organisation like Hezbollah, one of the things that sends a sort of a chill up my spine if the problems in Gaza were to escalate to to directly engage Hezbollah, Uh, because we know that Hezbollah has been working very closely for over a decade with the most organised drug cartels in South America. And that when Syria and Iran basically said, lads, we'd love to give you more cash, but we just don't have enough to give you, under the influence of sanctions in particular, the Hezbollah went out and said, okay, where can we find the cash to bankroll this operation? They went into business with the... um, most violent but beautifully organized um uh, medellin cartel in mexico and colombia and they established distribution networks for in particular cocaine throughout major cities in the united states all those networks remain in place uh, but completely lubricated by drug money Uh, so american sort of fentanyl and cocaine and heroin users were basically funding uh, hezbollah for the last couple of decades it's kind of good money if you can make it
3: yeah i mean drug money i think it's so there's so much money that it's just uh so alluring uh and it's a way yeah for whether terrorist groups Uh, or sometimes, you know, government clandestine agencies, uh, that's where they go to. And unfortunately, yeah, there are banks, you know, uh, that are complicit in this. Yes, amen. Well, listen, Jeremy
1: Kazmarov, you're a first-time guest. Uh, You've done a great job. We have really enjoyed having you. You're a courageous uh, man. Uh, We love the fact you've gotten out of bed early for us. We've been enlightened and educated, so we give you our blessing. Send you on your way. Go well. Thanks for being on the Ross Cameron Show.
3: My pleasure. It's great to be here. It is.
1: You. Ladies and gentlemen, good night. Go well. Sunday school is over. Enjoy the news. We'll be back next week, live in sound and pictures on TNT